We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie's daughter. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? Tonight on the all-new 85 Grave True Crime series, we bring you the chilling story of Cassie Jo Stoddart, a high school student from Pocatello, Idaho, whose murder was inspired by the movie Scream. We combed through hundreds of pages of case files and court transcripts to piece together exactly what happened to Cassie on that fateful night. Typical death stalker behavior, right? Let's get right into it. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. What is the first thing you think of when you hear Pocatello, Idaho? Potatoes? Gateway to the Northwest? Or does your mind seem to drift to more darker thoughts? A brutal murder, maybe? Most likely, because you are tuning in to the first case of our special true crime series, you just might be thinking of something along those lines, in which you would be correct. As of 2020, the small-ish town of Pocatello has a population of a little over 56,000 people. It was officially founded in 1889, when thousands of pioneers and gold miners settled there. It is known to be a quiet, largely Mormon town in southwest Idaho. Let's wander back to 2006 together now. You like scary movies? Uh Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? Uh The Scream movie franchise was popular at the time, as it still is today, even though the first one was released in 1996, a full 10 years before Cassie's murder. Cassie was a 16-year-old straight-A student who attended Pocatello High School, along with her boyfriend of five months, Matt Beckham, and classmates Brian Draper and Tori Adamchek. The four of them all knew each other and were friends. As you will see on our website, Cassie was very pretty with long, flowing dark hair. One might say she was the whole package, beauty and brains. In a 2016 interview from the Idaho State Journal, Cassie's brother, Andrew Stoddart, states that his sister was really artistic with a love for both drawing and music, that she was a great role model to him, and that she was your typical teenage girl. Brian and Tori were obsessed with the Scream movies and other horror-related films. They were also into making their own videos, as Brian was often seen walking around school with his Sony camcorder, filming day-to-day interactions with Cassie, amongst other things. Brian and Tori eventually began to document themselves on video, talking about killing in general. September 22nd to 26, we're skipping our fourth hour. We're not even playing right now. That audio you just heard was from a videotape that was recovered later with other evidence used in the murder. Brian's counsel argued that this tape was actually part of a horror movie that him and Tori were in the process of creating. Check out this snippet from the video taped on September 21st, 2006, the night before Cassie's murder. Hell, you restrict somebody from it, they're gonna want it more. We found our victim, and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. 
Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddard. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I, I mean, like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. The next evening, on September 22nd, 2006, Cassie had plans to house-sit and watch over the animals for her aunt and uncle, Allison and Frank Contreras. As some teenage girls tend to do in this situation, she had her boyfriend Matt come over to watch movies and keep her company. Later on, Brian and Tori also showed up, and they all decided to watch the movie Kill Bill Volume 2 together. After a bit, Brian and Tori changed their mind and said that they were going to catch a movie at a theater instead leaving Cassie and Matt alone at the house. Or so they thought. We know there's lots of doors. There, there's lots of places to hide. I locked the back doors. That's all I locked. Now we just gotta wait. Reading from the 6th Judicial District of the State of Idaho court transcripts, this is exactly what happened on Cassie's final night alive. On September 22, 2006, Brian and Tori went to the residence where Matt and Cassie were at on Whispering Cliffs. They visited with Matt and Cassie for a while and then left the residence. They got into Tori's vehicle, the red 1994 Geo, and drove down the street a short distance from the Whispering Cliffs residence. They pulled over and parked. They got out of the vehicle and proceeded to put costumes on that consisted of dark shirts, gloves, and masks. They each also grabbed a knife. They drove back and parked just to the east of the residence on Whispering Cliffs. They walked down the driveway to the residence on Whispering Cliffs where Matt and Cassie were located with their costumes on and knives in hand. They looked through the windows prior to entering the residence through the basement door on the south side. They walked around in the basement making noise trying to get Cassie and Matt to come down the stairs so they could scare them. They threw some objects on the floor in the basement, breaking them, in an attempt to get Cassie and Matt to come down the stairs. Brian and Tori found the panel box and turned the lights off in the residence. After a while, they turned the power back on. They heard Matt's mother arrive and pick up Matt. They then turned the power off again after Matt left with his mother, and they proceeded to walk upstairs. At the top of the stairs, Brian opens and slams a closet door in an attempt to scare Cassie. The Contreras' dog came out to them and then ran back into the living room where Cassie was. They walked into the living room and Cassie was lying on the couch. She jumps to her feet and asks them who they are. Tori was in front of Brian, walking toward Cassie. Cassie says that she is going to kick their asses. Brian hears Cassie scream and then he sees Tori stab her several times. Cassie goes to the ground and he hears a snoring, gurgling sound. Tori turns to Brian and says, I don't know what I have done. We have to kill her. Tori goes back to Cassie and stabs her several more times. Then they left the residence. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. I'm I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I oh just God. killed Cassie. Oh, oh, fuck. 
That felt like pretty real. Uh, I mean, it went by so fast. Shut the fuck up. We gotta get our act straight. Okay. They drive in Tori's car back to Tori's house, where they stayed for a while. They go into the garage of Tori's house and get a blue garbage sack and put the costumes and knives inside the sack. They grab a bottle of rubbing alcohol from Tori's house and throw the bag with the knives and costumes in the back of Tori's car. They leave Tori's residence and drive to a store to buy matches, and then they drive to the Black Rock Canyon area. They walk up a trail for a ways and then burn the bag with the costumes and the knives. Brian is not sure, but Tori then may have buried what remained after the fire. Tori had on high-top Converse tennis shoes and black jeans at the time Cassie is killed, but they do not burn those. The shirt, pants, and shoes that Brian was wearing at the time Cassie was killed were not burnt either. They then drove back to Tori's residence and watched a movie. Cassie's relatives returned home on September 24, 2006, two days after the murder, to find her deceased body on their living room floor, blood surrounding her. They immediately called 911 at 1.55 p.m. Cassie's autopsy revealed that she had been stabbed 29 times, nine of which were fatal. In these situations, isn't the boyfriend always looked at first as a person of interest? Here's what Cassie's boyfriend, Matt, stated in his police interview on September 24, 2006. On Saturday, September 23, 2006, Matt tried contacting Cassie several times but was unable to reach her. He did not go check on Cassie because he did not have transportation to get back to the house where she was. His mother had the car at work. On September 23, 2006, at approximately 7 to 8 p.m., Tori came to Matt's house and picked him up, and he spent the night at Tori's house. While at Tori's house, he became worried about Cassie and asked Tori to take him to see her. Tori told him that he did not have enough gas in his car to drive out there. The gas that he had in his car had to last him the rest of the week so Tori could not take him back to where Cassie was. He did not know about Cassie being murdered until Cassie's mother, Anna, called him on the telephone Sunday, September 24, 2006, and asked him what he had done to her daughter. Matt believed that both Brian and Tori had crushes on Cassie and at times would flirt with her. Brian and Tori are really into horror, suspense-type movies, Matt said. Lieutenant John Gansky of the Idaho State Police conducted a voluntary interview with Tori on September 24, 2006, at his house with his parents, Shannon and Sean Adamchek, present. He stated that he did indeed go to Cassie's with Brian, but nobody else showed up for the party, so him and Brian decided to leave the couple alone and go to the movie theater instead. When pressed, however, he could provide no details of the movie he went to see or what it was about. He stated him and Brian went directly back to his house after the movie and spent the rest of the night there. The next day, September 25, 2006, Lieutenant Gansky conducted a voluntary interview with Brian in which his mother, Pam Draper, was present. His statement was very similar to Tori's, 
in that they were at Cassie's and decided to leave and go see a movie at the theater instead. Brian also could not provide any details about the movie he supposedly just saw a couple days prior to this interview. Brian did say how shocked he was to hear about Cassie's death and couldn't believe that she was dead. Also, on September 25, 2006, Bannock County Detective Tom Foltz conducted an interview with a person who wishes to remain anonymous. This interview took place at Pocatello High School, and these are the statements from him or her from the court transcripts. Tori is obsessed with knives, guns, and horror films. Tori and his friend Brian are so obsessed with horror films that they are writing their own script for a horror movie. Tori and Brian's movie script is about a boy, girl, and a little boy getting killed. He or she has heard Cassie tell Tori that she wanted to be in his movie when he made it. Tori gave him or her the script about two months ago to read. Tori has told him or her that he loves killing movies like Scream and Friday the 13th. Tori has a knife collection that he keeps in the closet of his bedroom. Tori made a glove with knives on it, like in the movie Nightmare on Elm Street. He or she has heard Tori bragging about committing the perfect crime and how he watches killing movies and actually takes notes during the movie on how not to get caught when committing a murder. At school, Tori likes to mess around and pretend he is stabbing people and cutting their throats. Tori invited him or her to a party at the house Cassie was at Friday night, September 22, 2006. He or she did not go to that party. He or she knows that Tori has had a crush on Cassie for the last two to three years. Five days after the murder, on September 27, 2006, Brian and Tori were arrested and charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. They were charged as adults even though they were 16 years old. During the interrogations, Brian actually admitted to police that he was indeed present when Cassie was murdered but that he had no part in it. He continued that he was under the impression that him and Tori were only going back to the house to scare Cassie. Brian eventually caved in and led the investigators to Black Rock Canyon, where him and Tori had buried the evidence. During separate trials, Brian was found guilty on April 17, 2007, and Tori was found guilty on June 8, 2007. On August 21, 2007, Brian and Tori each received a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility for parole and 30 years to life for being convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. They are both serving their time at Idaho State Correctional Institution. Both Brian and Tori's attorneys filed separate appeals in the state Supreme Court in 2010 and 2011. These appeals were both denied. In 2010, Cassie's family filed a civil lawsuit against the Idaho School District. They claimed that the school was negligent and should have known that Brian and Tori posed a threat to others. Both the civil court and the state Supreme Court dismissed the case, saying the actions of the killers were not foreseeable. 
In the Lost for Life documentary that was released in 2013, Brian admits to his involvement in the crime and seems genuinely remorseful. Years after this happened, we were visiting and I was like, no, I am not innocent. Whereas Tori, along with his parents' enablement, is still torn on taking full responsibility for his actions, even going so far as to claim a degree of innocence. At that age, at 16, he still didn't commit this crime. Yeah, I mean, I he's, mean, not he's, that. That. he's not saying I'm that. He's not saying that. I'm saying I was, I made some mistakes and I learned from them. But your mistakes weren't anything you were charged with. They weren't the murder and the conspiracy. Yeah. That was Brian. It must be harder because you're innocent to be facing it. Yeah, I guess. He's been in prison six years, and he's he's still on his first day. You know, he hasn't progressed at all. And in the end, it's gonna hurt him in the end. You know, either psychologically, uh, if he has a conscience, or uh, you're in courts. You know, the, 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 they don't want to hear that you're completely innocent. You know, he's not innocent. He's not. Uh, you know, I'm not innocent. I'm guilty, and he's guilty. And that's where we all should start at. I urge you to check out this documentary for more crucial details and interviews with both Brian and Tori, as well as their parents. As of January 2020, Brian and Tori are just over 13 years into their sentences of life without the possibility of parole. They are both serving their time in the Idaho State Correctional Institution, located in unincorporated Ada County, Idaho. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court barred states from imposing mandatory life without parole sentences to convicted murderers under the age of 18. In the state of Idaho, there is no protocol of notifying inmates that new Supreme Court rulings could potentially impact their sentences. Both Brian and Tori have exhausted their direct appeals, which means they would not have an automatic right to an attorney should they try leveraging the new Supreme Court ruling into an amended sentence. The new rule applies to all except convicted juveniles whose crimes fall under the category of permanent incorrigibility meaning beyond correcting, improving, or changing. In July 2015, Tori gained a hearing for post-conviction relief. He claimed that testimony from character witnesses could have changed the outcome of the sentencing, but that his former attorney chose not to call upon these witnesses. Tori stated that his attorney believed that the prosecution would have submitted even more damaging evidence. In March 2016, his request for post-conviction relief was denied. Tory appealed the decision to the Idaho Supreme Court. On December 26, 2017, the Idaho Supreme Court rejected Tory's appeal for post-conviction relief. In 2016, the Supreme Court had made its ruling retroactive, potentially overturning life sentences for minors convicted of murder. 
conceivably paving the way for a time in the future where Brian and Tori could receive parole and be reintroduced back into society. Tori and Brian are among the cases that the state courts will review under this ruling. On October 16, 2019, the Supreme Court held oral arguments for a separate juvenile life without parole case that could have an effect on Tori and Brian's sentences. In January 2018, Tori had filed a federal writ of habeas corpus based on the new Supreme Court ruling. On November 25, 2019, the writ was denied. In October of 2014, an article appeared in the Idaho State Journal detailing difficulties the Contreras family faced in selling the property where Cassie Joe was murdered. It was their 13-year-old daughter who found Cassie on the floor when they returned home, said Frank Contreras, and she had been dead for two days. The family had been put up in a hotel for two weeks during the investigation by the Bannock County Sheriff's Office, who had even covered the insurance deductible for getting the house cleaned back up after the grisly murder. Frank says the family never went back into the living room where Cassie was found, and it sits unused with a feeling of emptiness and sadness. Allison Contreras lost her job and fell into depression. I had to pick up a second job. Medication alone was 300 a month, Frank said. The first two years were the worst. It was our dream home and it turned into a nightmare. Frank's stepdaughter also suffered a breakdown after claiming to see Cassie in the home, resulting in an attempted suicide. Frank says each member of the family has had an unexplained encounter in the home since the murder. As of 2014, Frank and Allison had listed the home each year after the murder, but had never gotten an offer, even with a low selling point that would only cover the amount still owed on the home. Frank says there is a stigma on the house. Records show that the house ultimately sold on June 26, 2015. The house is once again up for sale and newer photos as well as older listing photos we collected several years ago, can be seen on our website, 85grave.com, as well as the YouTube feed of this episode. We will try to keep our website, 85grave.com, updated with any new appeals and decisions, which are sure to be coming in the following months and years. The city slowly moved on from the tragedy, although Cassie remains in the hearts of family, friends, and residents of Pocatello. Friends painted a mural in her honor in front of Pocatello High School when they found out she'd been murdered. Cassie is buried at Mountain View Cemetery, just eight miles away from the home in which she lost her life. That wraps up our first case in our special true crime series. Please feel free to let us know your thoughts and opinions on this case by going to our website and YouTube channel and leaving a comment on the video with all the footage and pictures from Cassie's murder.